I had an awesome time with Tui today. I've gotten to know her over the years and she is full of both knowledge and just fun energy. We learned about her time as a CEO at five different companies, including Olaplex, where they are now a public company valued at close to $12 billion, as well as what it was like to be Troy Aikman's tutor and how she transitioned from being born in Singapore to being an executive in the US. Remember to be a friend, tell a friend, and subscribe if you enjoy the show today. Thanks, everyone. Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Earned. Today, we have the esteemed Jui Wong. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks so much for having me. I feel like, you know, we've been friends for a while, and now, you know, seeing you grow is exceptionally gratifying for somebody like myself who spent years in this industry. They say one of the best parts of growing older is watching your friends become badasses over time, right? Like, I think that's just such a cool thing to see like, wow, like, wait, they're doing that? You know, it's pretty cool. Exactly. I mean, like, you know, I feel like with technology and digital and also the ability to just connect with people has really given me an insight into opportunities that I would never have thought of when I was starting out, you know, in the beauty space. No, I can only imagine. Um, well, let's let's give people kind of a quick background, right? So um, you grew up in Singapore, so you're born in Singapore, then worked at Pepsi, a variety of other companies, have taken on a bunch of different leadership roles at Strivectin, or, you know, CEO slash president roles at Strivectin, Elizabeth Arden, Astral Brands, Moroccan Oil, now Olaplex is CEO. You took Olaplex Public, which is now worth, I believe, around $12 billion um, and is the number one brand we track in all of hair care when it comes to EMV. So you're, uh, there's going to be a lot to learn from today. I feel like I don't know anybody that's had five different CEO roles. Uh, it, <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a conversation with anybody else. And you still look like you've got another five in you. So I don't know how that works. Uh, mm-hmm. But congrats on all the, all the success. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, obviously, you don't get here by yourself. None of us do. I have to be very, you know, uh, honest in that there's always the team, the right moment, the right time in history. And when all things comes together, magic happens. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really funny. You talk about that kind of, and what's really interesting for me is to think about how your network and your knowledge and all of that has grown over time. Like if you look at the data, everybody always pays attention to like the 20 year old startup founder, like the Mark Zuckerberg or whatever. But actually, if you look at the data, each decade that you get older, you are more successful as an entrepreneur. And it's like, if I started a new software company, it's like, I have all of these friends and these relationships and this knowledge, and I know the vendors and I know the customers and I know all this stuff. Um, I can only imagine now where you're at after, you know, five of these in terms of that, it's just that pool of, of, uh, of resources to pull on has got to be so valuable. Well, what actually is exciting for me is when I started with Dr. Murat, which was my first kind of real entry into prestige beauty, I realized that he was, when he started Murat, he was around 55 years old. Then I joined Dr. Paracote and he was 55 years old when he started his brand, even though he was a renowned, you know, dermatologist. Same thing with Dr. Obaji. While I never worked for Dr. Brand, that was the same thing too. And I told myself at that time, I was way before 55. Now I'm well over 55. And I'm like telling myself, oh my God, I've got so much time to get there. Look at these people. They're successful. They started their brand. So really, you are absolutely right. I think as we get as we mature, whether it's in the business that we are in or as individual, we bring a lot to the table, but
but where the difference between somebody starting something and somebody thinking about something is the ability to take decisive action and make yeah. that action a reality. And I think, you know, you you know that so well yourself. I mean, like when you started this company in 20, what, 2014, 2013, yeah. probably yeah. a lot of people will have told you that you were kind of crazy. What what influencers? <laughs> what, 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 what is that word again? You know, is it influenza? They probably will ask yeah. you. Yeah, it does spread like influence, influenza, influencers too. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a time before most people thought it was a real thing. I mean, we de- we had a debate when we were first starting about like, should we integrate with this new Instagram company? Like, I don't know. Like, is this going to stick around? And then obviously, yeah. you know, it became you know the number one thing in the in the industry. So, um, you know, it's funny on the on the fifty five side. So. I found out that data maybe three years ago, right? And if you were to go back, I think maybe five years ago, um, we met David, uh, the founder and CEO of Pharmacy, right? David Chung. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, and he kind of, you know, he I think he was he was half joking, but mostly serious. He's like, let's cha- exchange some equity. He's like, I'll give you two percentage points. You each give me 1% of your company. And we're like, no, like, you know, we're really confident in our company. He sold pharmacy for 400 million. And we only sold for 70 million. And we feel great about it. But it's like, we found out that data later. And we're like, ooh, David had a big leg up on us. He's been doing this for a while. Like he knows what he's doing. So talk to me about um, kind of how your leadership style and philosophies have changed from that kind of first executive role, which I think was Astral, right? That was the first kind of CEO role. How have you changed? What have you learned, you know, uh, during these last kind of four or five companies? Yeah, I think, you know, go back a little bit before even my CEO role, I would have to say I needed to go back to everyone that interfaced with me before I turned 35 and apologize to them because (laughs) I really thought I knew everything. Then when you start on your first CEO role, you kind of think you know enough to be effective and then you very quickly realize you don't know a lot. And so I think over the years, each CEO role that I have taken up, and because most of them are turned around other than Moroccan oil and Oloplex, I realized that it is much better for me to work with the existing team than to try to helicopter in or bring people that I know, you know into the mix. Because the acclimation and the ability for them to really get acquainted with the brand will take so much more time than if I work with the existing brand. And I think I very quickly realized when I was at Strivecton that the best thing for me to do was to really re-engage and reignite the fervor that the team has. Because I do realize that nobody starts a job and kind of say that, oh, I just want to be mediocre. You know, as long as I don't get fired, I'll be happy. Nobody starts like that. Everyone starts and they are excited about their job, right? And yeah. I wanted to see whether that can be turned on. And if you can turn that on, magic happens and work. And it becomes so much more rewarding as a leader too, that you can actually help people see more of what they could be in themselves. Yeah. It's kind of, I didn't really think about that, but you've now had, because you've come in as the outside CEO five times. So you've had the opportunity to kind of go through that process a lot more than other people have. What, um, so, okay, so one of the things is coming in and trying to reignite people versus bringing your team with you. Um, How do you identify when it's just not working? Like, how often do you say like, hey, um, you know, I, it's not, it's just not the right fit, right? This person and this 
role is not the right thing. How do you kind of make that call? So in the first 90 days, that's very crucial. I mean, there's a reason why everybody kind of asks for your 90 days plan, because in the first 90 days, you can still be very impartial and you can kind of look at the business, look at the people and look at the opportunities in a lens that is not emotional. And while emotions and empathy is are very good, you know, qualities to have in a business, because especially in today's world, but at the same time, when you need to make that hard and fast decision on where you want to relocate, restructure and reorganize a business, you really need to take that 90 days and be very impartial in doing so. And what I find is that when I do that, I also have a plan in mind for the people that will be restructured out of the business as to what they are good in and how I can be helpful to them, whether it's in writing them a reference, unsolicited, or offer up an opportunity to speak to somebody on their behalf if they, you know, if they wanted or needed me as a reference. And I think when you do that and you start telling people the reason why this is happening, you get them to want to partner with you. And I know it's very counterintuitive. Why would anyone want to partner with you when you are restructuring them out? Because my conversation with them is that not that they are not good. It's just the fit with the organization is not quite there. Yeah. They could be brand builders versus, you know, just brand turnaround people. And to be very honest, most people love to build brands. Very few like to turn around brands because you do have to make those decisions to, to restructure. And I think that when you are given that task and that opportunity, the, you as the restructurer and the turnaround executive need to be responsible to the people that you are going to be, you know, motivating to continue in the business or exiting out of the business. And either ways, it will still be very, um, there will be a lot for them to take in, right? Those who stay are going to say, you know, they may have survivor syndrome like or, or guilt survivor syndrome and say, why me? And, you know, why do I get to stay? And my best friend in the company got to leave. The ones who left will say, why me? What have I done wrong? So I think that to handle that, And to be able to share with them your vision and your thinking is very helpful. And that 90 days is actually key because you are are going to be relatively fair and you're you're going to be data-driven and not emotionally charged. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I hadn't really ever thought about it that way. But like, you know, we went through our own kind of turnaround, right? Where we had been growing, doubling, double, 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 year after year after year. And then 2018, we looked at it and realized we had signed up like a bunch of like small brands that didn't really work well for us and um, a couple other things uh, that were like kind of hurting gross margins, whatever. So we ended up cutting out 50% of our revenue, right? And, you know, going from a company that's doubling every year to a company that's flat for two years while you kind of re-change the entire mix of the revenue, you had people that were like, this is not my journey, right? This is not what I want to go on. And they kind of self-selected out. But then as you came out of that, and then we started growing like rapidly the last like two to three years or the last two years or so, um, the bonds that you forge with those people that like go on that mission, that recovery mission are like, actually, I think stronger than those of the people that have just been on the growth path. Right. Cause that's just, that's easy, uh, in a lot of ways. Is that, did you see the same thing? Have you seen that kind of same dynamic? Yeah, I mean, I do realize that even now, the some of the people who continue to support me and who continue to send me notes, you know, ever so often, more of those people are the ones that I have restructured out 
than people that have continued to stay in the business with me. And I think the reason why is that they saw themselves going for bigger and better. And mm. there is and and the reason why they are able to see themselves in that way is because of the conversation that we continue to have. I mean, I had somebody told me once, you actually recommended me for this senior leadership position in this XYZ company, but you let me go. And I say, look, remember when I had the conversation with you, I told you that you're an outstanding XYZ executive, but it is not the timing of this turnaround is very truncated. It is going to be very cutthroat. And I'm just not sure whether you want to do this, that you want your imprint to be on something like this. And yeah. I think when you have that kind of the discussion and conversation, people realize what you're asking of them. And they may actually tell you, I don't want to do that. And if yeah. you're going to do that, then you go by all means, go ahead. So I, I think by being honest, by being transparent, and also letting people know when they're not very good at something. I mean, I, I've done this before too. When somebody keeps saying, look, I, I want to be, I want to take that next step. And I always ask them, ask yourself, if you take that next step and you're going to be more of a delegator rather than a doer, are you excited about it? I can tell you a CEO is the worst job on some level, right? You have no budget. You can't do, you can't make a decision without going to one of your team members who actually has the budget, who can actually make the decision on your behalf. You can only influence and, and try to get them inspired to look at, you know, to see where you want to take the company. And to me, some people enjoy that and others find that very tedious. Look, I don't want to keep having conversation. Just do it. You know, <laughs> on a certain level, yeah. I mean, you, you know you can't do it yourself. So you need to get people to be your partners rather than your followers. Yeah. We had a, one of my earliest, uh, one of our earliest hires who reported to me kind of wanted to take over a pretty significant chunk Um and I was like, is this actually what you want? Like, are you sure? I was like, I don't think this is actually what you're good at or what you enjoy. But yeah. it was like, it looked appealing, right? Because it was more responsibility and in title and whatever. And and then you know, ended up getting into it. And then now it's like, she, she brings it up constantly. She's like, I don't, she's like, I just always think about that conversation. And then I took it on and it wasn't what I liked doing. And then, you know, uh, so it's, it's hard to have those honest conversations, but it's important. Um, yeah. What, what would you say, if you were to boil down your kind of general leadership philosophies as a CEO into kind of two or three things, what would they be? I think first and foremost, recognize that when you hire talent, let them do their job. Yeah. I, I think I had made the mistake very early on thinking that, you know, first of all, being Asian doesn't help, right? Asian are helicopter parent. And so I treat <laughs> everything like, oh my God, I need to keep hovering. And I realized very quickly when you hire the talent, let them do what they do best, but be there to provide a net for them should they fall and mm. let them know that. Let them know, look, I'm not going to throw you under the bus, but I need you to stretch yourself. I need you to deliver on the goals that we have set together. But at the same time, know that if you stretch yourself and you feel, find that you are failing, good news travel fast, but bad news better travel faster. So those yeah. are the kind of key tenants that I tell my team members because at the end of the day, I will go after a problem to find a solution and not find the person to get rid of because, you know, to kind of blame someone because at the end, it all stops with me, right? Somebody once told me, you point a finger at one person, five are pointing back at you, basically. <laughs> so you are 
Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about a fast growing company, right? So we talked a little bit about turnaround projects, but you know, when you joined Olaplex, I think they were going around seventy percent year over year. Um, now the business is growing well over one hundred percent year over year, almost double in terms of growth rate, and it still maintained that pretty. Uh, it seems almost like you're cooking the books profitability. Um, so what, uh, what was it like when you came in, what were some of the investments that you made that kind of accelerated that growth profile? Well, I was very fortunate by, by this time joining Olaplex, Advent International was my fifth private equity back, you know, uh, company that I worked with. And they were very clear with me. They, are, they really wanted to invest behind the bread. It wasn't one of those you know, companies where they can't say, look, let's milk it for what it's worth. It was never that directive. And I would never have joined a private equity if that was the directive. In fact, none of the private equity I worked with had that kind of a directive. And that makes it much more appealing for somebody who's coming in, whether to turn around or to grow. And it was very clear to me that Olaplex had a couple of great things going for it because I was already at Moroccan Oil, really monitoring their success. First yeah. and foremost, their social media digital platform was really very organic and very authentic. You know, before the word authentic was being thrown around, that was one thing that came across loud and clear. Secondly, it was their patents, right? The fact that I remember when I heard that they beat L'Oreal in that first, you know, sort of lawsuit, it was a collective cheer, you know, in the business as well as small businesses. And, you know, it was very rare for a competitor like Moroccan Oil to be cheering Oloplex on. But that was that camaraderie, right? That that was the second thing. They kind of united the, the, the category, so to speak, you know, with the hair prestige category or the hair category. And then the third thing about them was that they were a remote working culture. And I have always wondered, like, if I were to restart a company, what would be the differentiator and to be able to get talent from across the globe. And so those three things were very clear to me as I was walking in. And then the one thing that made it, brought it all together was that they had both critical acclaim. So they win all these awards that you, that you can think of. And, but they also have box office success. I mean, they generate a boatload of revenue and I'm like, Hey, no movie gets gets that kind of credit. You either win an Oscar and become a dud at the box office, or you make a lot of money at the box office and you win no Oscars, right? And they have both. So walking in, I realized I have a very special team of people, but I also know that we have to have structure and discipline and investment. So I I kind of lean on what I know best, which is the e-commerce, the direct-to-consumer, the digital space, because those things. You can jettison something when it doesn't work. And when something works, you can double click, double down, and you can prove it with data that it works because there's call to action, there's KPIs, there's you know, return on investment. But unbeknownst to me, I joined in January 8 of 2020. Now in hindsight, I always tell people, people must have thought I was a genius you know, by doing that. I wasn't. I was just, you know, sometimes you defer to default to what you know best. So we updated the website. I mean, the website was really, when you went in, it was too similar picture Underneath say professional and the other one say consumer. So we quickly updated the website, make it an e-commerce website. And the other thing was they were already so strong on Instagram. And I'm like, yeah. what's the next big thing? Like Instagram is great. We were just, they were just dabbling on TikTok. And I remember they had like 12 million views. I'm like, that's nothing. We need to do more. And so yeah. when I started in April of 2020, there were 24 million views. And today, if you look at it, we are pushing close to 700 million views on our hashtag Oloplex. 
So wow. that is the power, right, of recognizing the good that they do, the momentum that they have, and giving them even more to do. So those were some of the investments we made. And then finally, in people. I was employee number 36. And today we have 125 people in less in two years and a little bit over. You know, so wow. if you think about it, those were the things that we were willing to invest in. And then the final thing was we, we really built out an R&D team. I mean, R&D used to be outsourced. And today we have a team of 12 people with our own R&D facility on the Pfizer campus, which is a 7,000 square foot, you know, sort of laboratory to really test and look at innovation. And we now have innovation right through, you know, 36, 48 months where we know we can lean in on those innovation and still be very relevant in the marketplace. So if you think about it, it, there was nothing really specific, but it was everything that Oloplex did well. And I kind of gave it that ability to do even more of it. And, and yep. that's why I'm so excited because to me, leadership is not about doing everything yourself. Leadership is to allow people to do bigger and better. You know, it's funny, like obviously the team got bigger and I want to talk about that. I'm really interested in the kind of recruiting side of things and how you think about recruiting and how you think about the people that you bring in. But I was just doing some quick math in my head. So the market cap per employee is like a hundred million dollars. <laughs> like what? That is such a wild. And I used to think I dreamt big because when I walked into the company, I used to tell them, every one of you need to be about like a $5 million employee. And they're like, okay. And, you know, because I was looking at where we were and kind of like, you know, getting up a little bit. And then when we went public, my 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 head of finance came to me and said, well, Julie, you have to dream bigger now because each one of them is much more than five million. I say, yeah, I, I, I just I just realized that too. <laughs> there is over a hundred million. It's like almost a hundred million. That's crazy. It is crazy. Uh, so how, how did you think about, so that's actually, let's get back to the team side. So that is, so you kind of 4X the team or three to 4X the team in a couple of years. Um, you know, what were the challenges in kind of maintaining that culture, right? That culture of scrappiness that got you guys where you were. And then how do you think about recruiting? Like what types of people do you look for? How do you, how do you approach that part of the process? Very great questions because these are questions that we need to address ourselves, you know, on a constant basis. So first and foremost, because it has always been a remote culture, we have been very fortunate. So our core team is so embracing that work from home culture and they want to maintain that, that anytime we bring a person in, it was, it's never like, oh, we are the OGs and you are the newbies. It was never that. It was more about how do I help you acclimate? So our HR has done a fantastic job where everyone has what we call a bond buddy. So it's somebody that is, you know, that started with a company. They have, you know, two, two three, four, five years, depending on in, when they were hired. And then on top of that, by the time I started, I was the second C-suite. We brought in our CFO, so the third C-suite. All three of us are what we call working C-suite. So we don't have the luxury of sitting around and delegate traffic and kind of like, oh, you do this and you do that. My CFO manages supply chain, IT, and finance. So he understands all the inner workings. He is working closely with the team. The team has a leadership, a C-suite leadership that they can talk to and really interact with. And it feels empowering, right? My COO is also the chief legal officer who handles all of sales, 
professional as well as retail sales and education. So she's a working C-suite person. And myself, as the CEO, until I brought on the CMO, I was essentially marketing, digital, e-commerce, which is direct-to-consumer R&D. So with all of that, when we are working, all these different, even though they are separate groups, but each one of them has someone to be accountable for, and they know that you are as powerful. Because remember, the C-suite is actually a body, a collection of thought leaders. It's not like, it's not a hierarchy, like the CEO is here, and then the CFO is here. It's not that way. And when you have people realizing that they are reporting to somebody who can make critical decisions and who can empower them and who can promote them, you find that they give their best. And so when we are hiring people, we hire people who really want to to be more than what they think they could be on their own and that they enjoy the camaraderie and the team spirit and the understanding that there's not one path to success. Because if we were a more traditional company, guess what? All our job openings will be preferably an MBA. We don't do yeah. that. We, yeah. we talk about experience. We talk about you know people you know wanting to f- be part of this culture that we have. And I think you, you get people to, who apply to you that ordinarily you may not consider if you're a more traditional big company type. And then you yep. realize, oh my gosh, you know there's so much talent out there that have great ideas. And they really can bring a different perspective to the organization. I mean, a a great example is my social media team. I have not added to that team other than the original team. But if anybody was to do a study on my social media team, they would never quite figure out why does this team work and other teams don't work. And the reason why is virtually everyone on my social media team have been a hairdresser before. They understand how the hairdresser think and take. And when we have an issue with anything, they are our voice and they believe us. Like my my QVC host is a former hairdresser. So when she's on TV talking about Oloplex, the professional community is engaged. They listen to her. They are not saying, why is Oloplex on QVC, right? I mean, those are the channel conflict that I don't have to spend too much time on, but rather focus on channel synergies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the management of channels in the professional space over the last couple of years feels like it had to have been pretty, pretty difficult given the pandemic and everything. Um, actually, well, let's, let's, let's ask about that for a second. So like, how have you guys managed through and how have you historically managed through kind of, you know, too much distribution versus kind of focus, right? Because obviously, you're only in one retailer, that retailer is going to do very well. The more you spread yourself out, theoretically, the, the, the lower the impact, right? Right. So, you know, like I mentioned earlier, people tend, most brands, when they say they are omni-channel, what they are really telling you is that I'm, manage, I'm multi-channel and I'm managing channel conflict. Mm-hmm. When I walked into Oloplex, it was very clear they didn't use the term omni-channel. They kind of say we are in direct-to-consumer, we are in pro, and we are in retail. And at that time, you know, retail was really new. They only went into Sephora in 2018. But what was very critical was the understanding that each of the channel kind of feeds off each other. The professional channel is our credibility, our authority built, right? Because when your hairstylist or your dermatologist or your medical professional tells you to do something as a patient, 
you're not going to second guess that. Maybe today they will because they are they have this little thing and they say, <laughs> oh, but this ingredient is X, Y, and Z. But but by and large, they listen to their pros. And then retail is where you build brand awareness. As soon as you are at retail, you find that your brand equity grows because more people hear they hear about you. And in our case, 35% of our customers are actually recommended by the professional to buy at retail. So oh, you, wow. you can see the synergy already. Yeah. And then yeah, the yeah. direct-to-consumer is where we gain a lot of consumer insights and we are able to give convenience to our consumers. So when you look at those three channels as synergistic and it feeds off each other and acts as a flywheel for you to really promote the brand, you you actually manage it very differently. You don't manage it by saying, this channel has to be you know, subservient to this channel. The only mm-hmm. time I tell my team that if all things being equal and they cannot make a decision which channel to really promote and to really support, the professional channel is the channel that we will never compromise because yeah. that is almost like the, that is our authority. So yeah. I think by doing all this, what we have found is that even during the worst of times, you know, about 50% of our business is with professional. So when COVID hit, basically 50 of our percent of our business could have been shut down. But because yep. we had profession, we had DTC and we had retail, and retail had their DTC, we were able to capitalize on that. And we also did one thing that was very natural to us. I mean, I could not have done that, say, in another company. But with Oloplax, I saw the love that the professionals had for the brand. So we actually started an affiliate program. And basically we told the professionals, look. I know you don't like to sell, but yep. you need to sell because this is your revenue channel, your revenue yeah, income. Right right now. Yeah. And so they could make money, but they needed to trust us because why? They're telling their own customers to come to our website and we have their name, their information, their shipping address, everything. But they trusted us to know that when the market opened up, the first thing we did was we emailed all these people and tell them, your stylists are open, they are open for business, go back to them. And yeah. this is the reason, I, I think you need to be authentic with your relationship. You cannot say you value them, and then the first thing you do is steal their customers. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, it's really interesting for me being, so I'm on the board of Nest, right? Which is the, they do candles and fragrances, and business is doing really well. But when I joined, I joined in... March or February of 2020, right? So I joined right before the pandemic. And then I walked into just an, you know, an absolute disaster, right? Because like they have real retail distribution. It's like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And then um, and then I got to watch how it progressed. And, and the thing that was most interesting for me in terms of their uh, distribution was they, uh, they have a really big boutiques business, right? Which are a lot like these salons or professionals business. And, you know, everybody expected, so you saw all the major retailers sales just tank and the boutiques were up year over year. Like what? And it's like, they were, even though they couldn't close their shop, they were like, they knew all their customers by name. So they're like hand delivering product and they were doing all these things to make money and be scrappy and make it work. And uh, we didn't do an affiliate program with them. I mean, they kind of get one anyways. Right. But uh, it was, uh, it was fascinating to watch the resiliency of these kind of, you know, mostly solo entrepreneurs um, in the middle of all that. It was really, really cool. And I think relationship matters too, right? If you think about it, when you have that client book and you are the hairdresser, think about it. We tell our hairdressers 
more than, I mean, for me, I don't have a psychiatrist. So my hairdresser is my default psychiatrist, right? You yeah. tell them everything. And when time becomes tough, it was very clear. They were the first one that a lot of us wanted to help. And so yeah. when we suggested this affiliate program, the clients, not one client that participated in this program asked us, can I get a discount? Nobody. They all wanted to pay full price because they knew a commission of what they bought was going to go to their hairdressers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, I think if you know how to make that connection, that's why I always say hairdressers are not emotionally charged. They are emotionally intelligent. And that intelligence has served them really, really well. No, that's awesome. That is such a good idea. Um, Okay, so when I think about this podcast, I think of it as being both for kind of the C level, right? So people that, you know, want to know kind of how to operate at that level, but also for people that are just getting started in their careers and want to know how to get to where you were or where you are today. So let's take a step back, right? On your, in your life. Um, you know, you were born in Singapore. And I think if I'm quoting the article correctly, correctly, you told your mom that you were going to work in the Big Apple one day. So no. tell me one, what attracted you to come to the, the US in the first place? And then two, what was that journey like, right? So what did you learn during that time? What were some of the things that you didn't expect for anybody that might want to go work in another culture, but didn't necessarily grow up in that culture? I think coming from Singapore was easy, right? If you look at Singapore, it's a full stop on the map. I mean, sometimes you don't even see it. It's like (laughs) Malaysia takes over from Singapore. And I'm like, so when you come from such a small country, Leaving that country is not too far, you know, sort of like an expectation. Not like in America. I mean, you're a continent and everybody wants to be here. And I think, you know, like anybody, you know, as a child growing up in Asia, America was the, you know, like in American tale, the little mouse, right? It's it's the road paved with, you know, gold and cheese, you know, whatever (laughs) you call it. And, and to me, it was really interesting to see on, in movies and on television, you know, the opportunities there are. Not that I knew what opportunities were at 12 years old. I mean, my mom and dad gave me everything that I wanted. But I knew in, in my hearts of heart that there was more than just going to school, being a good student, and then going to the local university. And I actually made a bargain with my mom. I basically told her, look, you let me go to university in Australia, And the reason why I chose Australia was because Australia's school term started in March and the U.S. school term started in September. I didn't want to waste that six months, you know, in not doing anything. I wanted to graduate in December at home and then go to Australia in March and start my school year. So I negotiated for that and I told her, look, once I go there, once I sow my seeds in Australia, I will come back and stay in Singapore. And my mom said, what about U.S.? I said, don't worry, in in between, I'll find a way to get to the U.S. So I did it. (laughs) I did I was in Australia and I did an exchange scholarship to go to UCLA. So I had that. And then I applied to go to the London School of Economics for my master's and I got accepted. And I told my mom, okay, I'm going to go and then I'm not going, and I won't leave Singapore anymore. And she said, no, you're not. And I got a job at that time with Cargill, which allowed me to travel. And I have always said I wanted to go to the US and Cargill told me, look, we are a US-based company. If that is what you want, we can make that happen. So one thing led to another, and I have always joined. I've always joined an industry not because of the industry, but because of what the industry's opportunities could be. So if you yeah. think about it, I was a graduate in political science and international economics. Why would I join a trading company? I mean, which makes no sense. But because yeah. the trading company promised me 
travel and an opportunity to be eventually in the US, I kind of say, aha, I'll take that. And, and <laughs> how I do my job, I'll figure it out. Yeah, that's cool. And then obviously, you know, you made it over here. And that's, it's, I don't know. I For me, it just feels really daunting. I guess I did, I went and lived in Australia, but that's, I mean, that's hardly, hardly worth noting. It's, uh, yeah, it's just really impressive. Um, so let's, we'll fast forward a little bit. So your husband passed away in 2009. So sorry, heart attack. Thank um, you. You know, I can only imagine the impact, like if I were to imagine myself in that situation, it's like, feels just kind of ground shaking. Um, how did your perspective on work change and how did your habits change kind of after that? Or did it change? Was it kind of, you know, uh, not too much? Yeah, I mean, it, it did change in giving me a perspective that I never thought I could appreciate. I've always, you know, deferred family, you know, in, in the back burner. I always think that, you know, they will be there for me. And I realized that that wasn't further from the truth. Like something bad could happen and then everything, you know, can be taken away from you. It allowed me to be more empathetic to my team as well. And I think that was the beginning. It was my first CEO role. It really made me a better person at helping people and managing people. Because in the past, I used to think, why do you have to go to a baseball game? Like, I mean, I don't say it, but I'm thinking it. Like, this job is really important. You need to stay here and do the job. But I'm like, you have to go. Okay, go. But I wish you didn't have to go. But when, when this happened to me, I realized, my God, you stupid fool. That is more important because your child is only going to be eight years old once. But you're going to work for the rest of life. And yeah, you know, yeah. but that eight-year-old will remember that you were not at his or her, you know, softball or baseball game. And it really changed my perspective. And to today, I'm that way. When my, when one of my team members are on is on vacation, I try not to connect with them. I try not to write them even an email unless yeah. you know something you know really a big needs to be done. And I find that by doing that, I'm giving myself space to actually allow myself to think differently and think in their shoes. And I just recently spent a week, you know, where I did get in touch with the office, but very nominally. And I think everybody felt good. Like they realized that I could take time off and that they could be away from me and things can still happen. Because the hallmark of a good leader is not that when you leave, things fall apart. It's that when you do leave, things continue and they should flourish. Because haven't you heard, like some people will tell you, oh my God, when I left, the company has gone to pieces. But that's the re bad reflection of you as a leader. <laughs> and to me, it's not a compliment, it's an indictment. So I would never want that to happen. You know? Yeah, you didn't help set the company up for success, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about kind of, so one of the things I like to think about, and I'm curious actually to hear what your answer is, Um is, you know, whenever, one of the things I've observed about working with people is there are things that people are really, really good at, right? Like we had a developer, he could get things done super fast, but then, you know, underneath it wasn't perfect, right? So it was like, you know, there would be mess that'd be created later. And frankly, I'm kind of similar in that way. I can get things done very quickly, but sometimes you'll miss a detail here and there. Um, so, you know, whatever superpower somebody has is often, um, you know, uh, reflected in some kind of weakness they have as well. So for you, what would you say has been your superpower within your career? And then what is the kind of accompanying weakness? And that's such a great question because, you know, it's always a double-edged sword. So 
to me, I think my superpower is future hunting. I tell my transformation team that all the time. Not that that's my superpower, but they are my future hunters. And that's what I would love to do, you know, if I wasn't doing this job. And I think what I do is I look at the future and I always feel like there's a better way. Like I would reinvent television if I could. And probably, <laughs> you know, the fact that television no longer exists obviously shows that television can actually be reinvented. And to me, I always look at things and feel like, it can be done differently. It can be done more efficiently. And I remember way back in 1999, I was at the Dow Corporation. They didn't yeah. even have a website. So they put me on this task force to set up a website. And I, I remember talking to the developer and said, why does it have to be goods on a, a page? And then you have to check out, why can't I have a moving individual walking down the aisle, picking it off the, 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 the aisle, putting it in the basket and going out to the checkout basket and that person is me. Yeah. And they look at me like, what the hell are you talking about? And fast forward <laughs> today, it can happen. It actually is happening with gamification and, you know, with all the avatars of yourself. So I feel like that's my superpower. But unfortunately, when you are always future hunting and thinking, you can kind of get lost in a lot of ideas. And you've got to be very careful in how you communicate those ideas because some people will take you literally and try yeah. to figure it out. And others will like throw their hands up on their head and say, I can't believe you come up with another harebrained idea again. You, know? <laughs> you just have to like really manage yourself. But I enjoy it. Like, you know, over the weekend, I wrote several emails about NFTs and, you know, how like crypto now is illegal in China. So what does that mean? And I'm like thinking to myself, and, and my, my, my partner will ask me, can't you just give it a rest and not think about it? But I say it's so exciting. This is not job, not work to me. I love thinking about it because yeah. ultimately, but I need to temper myself. I mean, I can think that myself, I can have that communication with friends and, and colleagues, but I need to ma make sure that they don't think, okay, go out and make it happen. Because I'm at a, at a level now where people actually think that when I say something, it better happen, but I need to kind of pull back on that as well. Yeah, it's all about the communication there. I had the exact same problem, right? Where we're always coming up with new ideas and you talk to them, you know, like you talk to a peer because that's how I view them, right? Yeah. But when you control their salary and whether yeah. they're employed and all these things, there's that that power dynamic just changes the way that things are perceived. Whether you, no matter who the person is and how, you know, how collegial you are, et cetera. Um, I, I've had to, I'm not great at that. I'm better than I used to be. Um, yeah, you, you gotta be really careful about what you throw it out. I can do it to John. So John and I do it to each other all the time right. because, like, we know, like, I'm not gonna go do what this random idea that John had, and vice versa. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a good one. I like that one. Um, okay, one more question, and then we're gonna do a fun end of show question. Okay. Um, so you've also been quoted as saying, you know, do what scares you, um, and I can imagine that today you've got a hyper growth public company where you're the CEO, you're doubling, tripling headcount. That sounds pretty scary. A lot going on there. But what is the next thing? If there was a next thing that scares you, what would be the next thing that you would uh, you'd go after? You know, but when I was thinking about this question, one of the things that I, I asked myself is like, you know, I always want, I always tell myself that I need to be more present and that I need to use my influence, the, the little that I have for for good, you know, rather than just kind of like perpetuating 
what I think I should be doing, like act on it. And I think what scares me is that the more I I feel like I have the reach and influence, the more I feel compelled that I need to stand up and be, be more empowering to others. And that scares me because there's no right or wrong, right? When you do business, there's a right or wrong in that if you make money, obviously not at the expense of killing someone, but if you make money fairly and equitably, everyone rises. But when you have to stand for something, not everyone will agree with you. It's like being a politician. You, you know, you can't have everyone liking you. And I think that scares me because I feel like I don't have the luxury of saying that I want to do good and empower people and help others where there's no stake in, you know, that I, there's no stake in the ground. And I need to stand up for that. And to me, that is going to be more of what I do rather than somebody throwing it at me because I can either push myself to do more of that and to really stand up or I can actually not do anything and talk a mean game, right? Great dinner table conversation, what I think I could do, how I, I, I could be different. But if you don't act on it, it's going to be tough. So one of the things that I do, I have a dream about is what if one, you know, Every company in the world, one day, pledge one day of their net revenue yeah. to charity. And then yeah. we don't have to worry about every day, like somebody soliciting, like, can you donate to this X, Y, and Z charity? If we can all do that, can it really happen? And I always talk about this, but I don't make an effort to pull people together or talk about it, but I probably should. And that is something that I feel like, you know, I, I need to do it. And I need to do it soon, but I still, while well, I still have some influence, because I always remember, I think John Lithgow, the actor, used to say, when you first start up as an actor, people will say, Who, who is this John Lithgow? And then <laughs> you get famous, and everyone, we want that John to be in our movie. And then you, and then, you know, after a certain period of time, they will say, Who, who is this John again? You know, <laughs> I feel like you all, we all have a moment in time to yeah. do the best that we can for, for, for society or for the community that we are in. And if we squander that time, it will be gone. Yeah, you're right. You've got that kind of moment at the, at the podium, so to speak. Yeah. I think particularly now, right? Given it's one of those things where it's, um, you know, you have this same kind of balance slash fear of like, you're also, you got a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders to like, you know, to do what's in their best interest. Um, yep. So how do you balance those two things, right? Um, I can I can say on the on the uh, on a personal level, I I have been of any person I've worked with. I think you are the most generous when it comes to mentorship that I've found. So you're certainly doing it on a one-on-one -on -one level, but um, I'm excited to see what you can do uh, what you can do at the platform. I think it could be pretty special. Yeah, I, I need to I need to push myself because you know, like I need to follow my own advice, right? So that's it. <laughs> well, you I think you've you've pushed yourself pretty pretty hard in terms of the scary department. Um okay, so one fun end of show question. So as you mentioned, you did a kind of study abroad program at UCLA. Um and one of the fun facts that I know was that you were uh, Troy Aikman's tutor. Yes. Um, so what I want to know and what I want the rest of the world to know was what did Troy Aikman need to be tutored in? What, what subject was he not good at? So all football stars, I'm not sure whether it's today, they need to keep a GPA of 2.8 to 3 to continue to yep. play. 
So that yeah. was what I needed to make sure that not only he maintains that GPA, but also does all of his homework. So it was really like a glorified babysitter. And I was chosen for that role only because I knew nothing about football and I didn't even know who he was as a transfer student. So it was very easy to give me that job. And, and so sometimes ignorance is bliss. Let's just put it that Oh, for sure. And for those that don't know, the reason why that matters is Troy Aikman ended up being the number one overall pick in the NFL draft, and then he won multiple Super Bowls. He's in the Hall right. of Fame. And he's back in so, the news again, because yes. he is speaking of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where he's going to, is it Amazon he's leaving to? He's leaving Fox? Yeah, because Amazon is going to put up like a sports channel of some sort and would like him to lead it. So he's back in the news again. Yeah, yeah. it's funny that they, I guess that makes sense, because they don't want somebody that is like, going to like worship the ground he walks on they want somebody that's actually going to like keep him in line a little bit it always makes better sense i mean like you know when you do not know something again you know on some level it's like does do what scares you when you don't know anything all you're going to do is you're going to treat that person like a normal person right but when you know that person is somebody guess what you tend to watch your p's and q's you are not trying to you know and when you don't know you treat them exactly what you would with your own friends. I mean, obviously over time, I realized who who he was, but by that time, you know, I was already deep in the job and it was easy for me to continue to do so. Yeah, for sure. Well, I really appreciate you taking out the time. You've got a packed schedule and you're always so generous with your time. I don't know how you all fit, you fit it all into the day, but uh, I know I learned a lot today. I'm sure a lot of other people will too. So thanks, Jui, for joining. No, thank you so much for having me. You have a good day. Take care. Awesome. All right. Bye, Jay. Bye. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at TribeDynamics.com. TribeDynamics.com.